Welcome to the Herald Podcast, New Generation, a podcast created for those who desire a new way of gaining information rather than reading a traditional newspaper. In our show, we will discuss everything from sports, pop culture, politics, and local news. To stay up to date on our latest episodes, be sure to subscribe, and you can also check us out weekly on all major streaming platforms. And don't worry, we keep it short. You're now listening to the New Generation Podcast. I'm your host, Janae Avery. And I'm your other host, Tanner Mondock. And this week we have an intriguing story that we're talking about, and it has to do with the editorial that will be released this Saturday from our editor, Jeff Garrett. So we have Jeff here in the studio with us today, and we're gonna have him talk a little bit about his three-part editorial that he's writing. So to start off, Jeff, can you kind of just tell us the facts surrounding why you wanted to write about abolishing the death penalty? Thank you, Janae and Tanner, for having me again. We have been running in the past couple of months an occasional editorial on the death penalty. We call it the crime of punishment. On the opinion page, which we are urging the state to abolish its death penalty statute. And in the past, in the past few editorials, we've examined the death penalty as a policy issue. And we've argued why it's a bad policy. In other words, it's extremely expensive because of the legal expenses. The state has spent a billion dollars on the death penalty statute since it started in 1976. It does not deter crime. It's There's a significant chance of executing an innocent person. More than 180 people on death rows around the country have been exonerated, and it's very racially unjust. So there are a lot of reasons on the policy issue to oppose the death penalty. This time, we're looking at the death penalty from a little different perspective. The moral issue, is it immoral, is it moral? In other words, are some crimes so egregious, and all of these crimes are first-degree murder and mostly the most brutal cases, are some crimes so egregious that they demand and call for the death penalty? And that's a much harder uh, argument to argue against. It's, it's more of a subjective question. And to examine that question, I interviewed several people who had had immediate family members brutally murdered and then went on to oppose the death penalty. They found a way to forgive and move, move forward. Very inspirational. I think we all can learn something from them. And so this week on the podcast, we interviewed one of those families. So stick around for that. Thanks, Jeff. You're welcome. Janae, Tanner, thanks for having me. Keep up the great work. So welcome back, guys. We are now here with Sylvester and Vicki Schieber. We talked a little bit earlier on in the episode, a little bit about what we're going to be talking about, but now we're actually sitting here with them over Zoom. How are you guys doing today? We're doing fine. Very thank well. You. Thank you, God. Oh, well, <laughs> thank you for coming on. We definitely really appreciate it. You're welcome. And as you guys already know, our editor, Jeff Garrett, he reached out to us and expressed that we should reach out to you guys just to kind of hear your story about what happened to your daughter Shannon so to start off the interview I want to paint a picture so can you guys tell us who Shannon was to you as a person well Shannon was born in 1974 uh, the uh, the day before Richard Nixon resigned from the presidency at that 
helps uh, create a, a perspective in time frame. Time frame. <laughs> she was a uh, an extremely bright young child, uh, extremely bright throughout her life. Uh, by uh, 18 months, she knew her ABCs. By three, she was reading, not because we were feeding her things. It was just that she had this appetite. She was a voracious reader throughout life. It was an advanced placement in grade school and high school, was president of her student body uh, in her uh, senior year at Bethesda Chevy Chase High School. It's a high school with around 2,000 students, integrated uh, population uh, in the suburbs of Washington, D.C. Uh, she uh, went to Duke University as an undergraduate, graduated in three years with a triple major, mathematics, economics, and philosophy, and then worked for about a year and a half and then went back to graduate school at the, uh, the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, she was working on a PhD in, in uh, finance and risk and insurance. Uh, she was not only extremely bright, she was extremely personable. Mm -hmm. uh, she was into uh, various other things than, than academic. Her uh, last year at Duke, she was co-captain of the equestrian team. Uh, so she was just kind of an all-around person. Yes, I think there is, you talk about all the academic stuff and all the other great gifts, but for, for what I see as a, as a social worker background, that she really had a great interest in how people are feeling about things. Are they, are they involved in this? How do they take care of everything? And every time she'd see something going around, she said, Mom, Mom, you always said, if you see a problem, what are we going to do about it? We got to talk about that, don't we? <laughs> so she was a very um, conscientious, caring person. And I think a lot of it had to do with, um, I give a lot of credit to our faith-based upbringing. We come from a very, very... Uh, um, we were each number five out of eight children in our families, and and we were educated very much in the Catholic faith, and uh, it it gave me and I think the rest of my family a pretty solid base of what's important in life and how to balance things. And she took that in very well. She really did, and she could make friends so easily. Everybody loved her. You know, she was so easy with them. She wasn't difficult or snappy or crappy, you know, like some of us are sometimes. <laughs> so she just was just a joy and a gift. And I think we woke up every day saying, oh, thank you, God. You've been so good to us. She has a younger brother. Uh, they were 18 months apart. They were best friends. Uh, and uh, the day she uh, was killed, he, uh, he was the one that found her. Well, it certainly sounds like Shannon was a really just substantial and very intelligent and just all around great person. Right. Way off so, yes. So you just kind of mentioned there that her, her brother then was the one who found her that the day she was killed. So if you guys want to kind of go back to that time, then I think it's kind of like the beginning then when you first kind of like, you know, we're starting to think, you know, maybe something was up, something was wrong, something wasn't right. She was right at the end of her first year in graduate school. <laughs> It was early on a Thursday morning. She had her last final exam on Friday. She would, had been up studying. Uh, she was supposed to come home. It was the, uh, it was the seventh day of May. Uh, she was supposed to come home either uh, late Friday or Saturday. It was Mother's Day weekend. Uh, she was coming home. We always had a, a breakfast celebration for Mother's Day. And as we came to find out, she 
about two o'clock in the morning, uh, 1.30 or so in the morning, she uh, decided to take a bath to relax. She'd been up studying and was, I guess, just going to kind of cool down and maybe, uh, maybe get a little bit of rest. And uh, while she was running her bath, a fellow managed to creep into her apartment. She lived on a second floor apartment. It had a balcony with a sliding glass door, patio door. There was a tree right outside the balcony, but it was wrapped in barbed wire. So we all thought that it was, you know, a very safe, uh, safe place. The uh, screen door on the sliding glass door was locked. It was a muggy, uh, muggy night and her door was slightly ajar. He managed to crawl up between the two buildings. The building next door was about three foot away from it. He managed to claw his way up between the two buildings, swung over onto her balcony. And uh, while she was running her bath, he uh, pried open her patio door. And as she came out the door to throw a robe on her bed, he grabbed her. They wrestled. She screamed for help. And uh, the next door neighbor heard her cry out. They called police. The police uh, were there within seven minutes from the commencement of the 911 call. Uh, the uh, next door or the, the next door neighbor was there and greeted the police, told him what he'd heard. He'd knocked on her door, he heard her scream, her being choked. Uh, the neighbor uh, below her was uh, also roused and said that she had heard commotion in the apartment. They couldn't convince the police of the two police officers to break the door down. Uh, they pounded on the door and, and they turned to the people. They said, look, there's nobody, no nobody, uh, nobody here. Nobody answers. There's nobody home. You know, couldn't this have come from outside or somewhere else? And they left within five minutes. The next day, Sunshine was passing through Philadelphia. He was on his way up to uh, Massachusetts for a graduation up there for some people he'd gone to college with. Uh, and he was going to stop and have lunch with her. She didn't show up. So he went over to her apartment and around two o'clock finally raised the next door neighbor who had called police the night before, came down and let him into the apartment building. They ran back upstairs and broke her door down. And as they uh, opened the door, got inside the apartment, she was laying uh, uh, on the bed naked, uh, dead. She had been strangled to death. Many months later, the case was taken to the FBI profilers and uh, by this time, it was known that they were dealing with a serial rapist. And the FBI profilers concluded that when he went into her apartment, he had no intention of, of killing her. Uh, but with the police standing there pounding on the door, he strangled her to death to keep her from crying out again. Because if she cried out again, they, they would have broken the door down and, and, he, and, and captured him. So he was avoiding capture. Uh, and to do that, he uh, he killed her. So you kind of talked a little bit there about like how the police handled that. So just to like make that maybe a little bit clearer then. So they were at the apartment while he was still inside, but they decided to leave then? Well, yeah, yes. Yeah. There was later some argument over whether or not he'd already left by the time he was there. He had confirmation that he was there yeah. when the, the police officers were there. Yes. And so what was that like for Sean then? to have to experience that finding a sister. Well, pretty debilitating. And I think it's taken years for him to really come to, to grips with some of it. He doesn't like to talk about it as you might imagine. 
understand. But he, you know, he is leading a productive life. He's married. He has three children, our, our grandchildren. We live fairly nearby them, so we see them fairly frequently. So, you know, we all decided that Shannon's death should not mean our death and that we needed to move ahead and have productive lives. And so that is the way we have tried to uh, tried to live since then. And I got very involved in that, uh, working with a lot of murder victims, family members because of my social work and, and background too. And, it, you know, it's really, we, we tell, talk about this many times to people, you know, saying, you know, you can let that anger in you just boil up and, and just destroy you. And it doesn't do anything to the person who's already dead and can destroy your family and everything. So we had learned that that was not how we were going to handle it. We were going to really try to work together with people and help them and, and not show a lot of anger and, and um, being upset with things. That's not easy, as you can imagine, <laughs> very much. And would you say your experience as a social worker helped you along the way when you were making the decision to basically oppose the death penalty when it came to Shannon's murder? That was one, one of the factors. And then as uh, the, both, I started out by saying both of us are coming from very strong religious backgrounds. And I had studied to be a nun for a while even. <laughs> so, uh, but I had very strong religious trainings as both of us did. And, and I think it was a, an amazing gift to us because we were able to, you know, uh, calm things down, not hold on to anger, try to help other people. And it really helps you too. You, it's a gift to you. Our initial decision was based on on our faith background. As we as we came to understand the death penalty and actually being faced with the potential of being involved in a death penalty case, we developed a broader perspective on what was involved. And and there's many other reasons than just our religious belief to. Uh, oppose the death penalty. Uh, you know, it's applied very unevenly on the basis of economic status, on the basis of racial status, on the basis of geography, on a whole variety of, of different factors that make absolutely no sense in a country where supposedly uh, people are to receive equal justice under the law. Kind of wrap up the conversation. Um, I do have a question for you guys. Obviously, you've been through a lot over these span of 23 years. So for any family or person who may be experiencing something like this, what advice would you give to them to kind of help them through the process or to just shed some light on to your situation or what they could do in their situation? Well, one of the things we have come to see and understand is that when these kinds of crimes happen, they're, they're, they're horrific crimes. And don't try to put frosting on the cake. It's uh, the people that commit these crimes are not going to, to be featured on Alter Boy magazine. Uh, you know, they, they are, uh, some of them are, are quite brutal individuals. When you're caught up in the passion of what has happened and the anger, there, there's a natural human inclination to strike out. And oftentimes, I think, if you, if you watch these cases, they play out fairly frequently in the news. And someone tries to catch the survivors in this period of passion. They are pumping them to find out what their feelings are and what this has done to them. Well, 
you know, you, you've probably experienced anger yourselves at times for whatever reasons. And later on, you kind of settled down and thought, well, you know, what I, what I said then, what I did then is not the way I really want to behave and not the way I want to comport myself. And I think oftentimes the police and the prosecutors get people in cases like ours fairly quickly and, and they make a joint public statement that they're going to find justice for the, for the person who's been horribly wronged. And there is no doubt it's horribly wrong. And, and they kind of co-opt people into a path that later on, maybe they don't really want to be on. So I, my, my counsel is try and find someone in those initial days that would help give you solace and help kind of get your blood pressure back down. So you can think through exactly what the issues are that you're going to be dealing with and how you wish to deal with them. The problem, one of the big problems with the death penalty and survivors, the survivors of the, of the people that have been killed, is that these things drag on for years and years and years. We have met people who have been caught up in this journey of hatred for 20 years, 30 years. And it's horribly damaging. It's horribly damaging to their psyche. It's horribly damaging to their health. It's horribly damaging to their relationships. And, and it basically just ruins their lives. So the individual that killed their loved one has not only killed their loved one, for all practical purposes, they've killed them as well. And, you know, it, it's often attributed to Mark Twain that, that acid uh, does more damage to the vessel in which it is stored than to anyone on whom it is poured. You, 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 I, I didn't understand wrath being one of the deadly sins until I got somewhat into this journey and saw other people that took the different path than we took. It just destroys their lives. And, and I think it's a mistake for people to make a commitment to take that path in that immediate period of anger and, and remorse. They need, to, they need to find someone to help give them solace so they can step back and get their wits about them. And, and step back and pro provide them some information about what happens to people like this. You know, tell them, you know, there's high rates of divorce, high rates of unemployment. There's, you know, all, all kinds of terrible things going to happen to them as they spend the rest of their lives if they have to hold on to this anger. If the man who and killed Shannon had been sentenced to death, he would be he would still be in prison in in Pennsylvania waiting for that sentence to be carried out and we would have gone through this process year after year after year he indicated he was willing to plead guilty they had so much evidence on him there was no place he could go that he was willing to plead guilty to all of the cases there were 14 known attacks one murder he was willing to plead guilty to all of these cases, including the murder, if he didn't face the death penalty. And we made a very public statement saying we oppose the death penalty, even though the DA, the district attorney, was out saying that she didn't care what the Sheber said, she was going to pursue the death penalty in the case. 
and we made a very public statement. And we, we the, the defense attorney, his defense attorney told us afterwards, we put a hurdle she could, up that she couldn't get over. So they went out and they negotiated a plea deal where he pled guilty, knowing he was going to be sentenced to life in prison without parole. He was captured on the 23rd day of April in 2002. On the 30th day of May in 2002, he was sentenced to life in prison without parole for Shannon's murder. In a little over five weeks, we were done with the legal proceedings. So you think about five weeks and we're done and we can go on and try to create a productive life versus being caught in this web of anger and recurring, reliving all of the gory details of what happened for now 23 years and God knows how much longer. And we have to share. We didn't begin to understand the kind of death march that this is, but boy, we've learned a lot about it. A heck of a lot. Yeah. And I mean, you guys have worked, you know, for a long time now in trying to get the death penalty abolished in the state of Pennsylvania. It doesn't do the survivors any good. Mm. There has not ever been a single one of these sentences carried out where it brought back the loved one. No. Well, thank you guys. We definitely, we really appreciate, you know, taking the time out of your day to talk about this. Okay. Thank you and take care and good luck. Thank you to the Sheber family again for coming on and talking to us. And um, that'll do it for this week for The New Generation. Thank you all for tuning in another week and listening to the show. Thanks, guys. See you next week.